are here at 11FS headquarters in London WeWork for episode 37 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Binance offers a bounty for hacker arrest, Egypt forces citizens to mine crypto, maybe, and we bring you an interview with the one and only Sandra Bro. Alrighty, we're here and, well, I'm here. Uh, with the production team, but Colin, you're back near your rhododendrons in France. My my mini field, as you call it, and and you'll be happy to know that I've set up a little garden inside my garden. You've got a garden inside your garden. This is like what? I'm. This is inception for stuff. Tomatoes and, and potatoes and all that great stuff. Wow. Well, um, I heard this, you become a gardener. Well, no, you brought me three rhododendrons that now sit on my desk in the office. So we are rhododendron, rhododendron central. Uh, I think we've got a new... <laughs> That's like a really mini garden, isn't it? Or like a really mini field. It, it's the, the fields are getting smaller, but the stories are getting longer. So we'll better get on with the show. Um, you, you're still going to Seoul. You're still going to South Korea, Colin. Yes. Uh, despite the, my checking, they have no fields. I will still be going to Seoul uh, for the Deconomy Conference on April 3rd and 4th. If you're out, come say hi. I, I'm sure you'll be taking many rhododendrons with you. Um, so before we get into the news, uh, we've got a quick word from our, our new sponsor. Um, Blockchain Insider is brought to you this week by Consensus and Colin's sense of irreverence. Um, there's a number on the Consensus team. Um, they've got some top uh, talent, of course, and they have some business leaders at their company. I didn't realize that they have like 700 people across six continents. I hope all of those 700 people have their own Rhododendron, Colin. I think that's our, our new outreach plan. So they're building decentralized applications focusing on world-changing ideas like uh, self-sovereign identity, supply chain, asset tracking on the blockchain, uh, developing more efficient electricity, um, and they're hiring right now. They are hiring talented individuals at all roles in different geographies, including Antarctica, to build the decentralized web. If you're looking for a job working in this sector, definitely check out Consensus. That's C-O-N-S-E-N. S-Y-S dot net slash blockchain insider to find out more. Um, all right. First story, Colin. Uh, Cointelegraph has a story. Uh, Binance, the exchange, offering a $250,000 bounty for the arrest of hackers. So on the 7th of March, they had an incident with one of their APIs. This, this essentially allows people to plug in and automate their trading or put trading into other applications. That somebody uh, was able to get around the security, access people's accounts, and uh, make trades on their behalf. This did all kinds of things that cost people money. The idea was that they could convert this into something called ViaCoin, which is another cryptocurrency, and transfer that out. They made all kinds of weird trades. Uh, they were not able to actually get the money out, but they were able to effect transactions. Binance later went by and, and reversed a lot of these things. And then afterwards, over the, over this weekend, they said, right, if anybody figures out something that leads to the arrest of this person, no matter where they are in the world, we will give you $250,000 in Binance coin. They have their own coin because who the fuck doesn't anymore. And what they really want to do is they want to make sure that there, there are not people doing this again. So they put up another $10 million in cryptocurrency reserves to go towards future hacking attempts. This is The idea is here you want to deter it because uh, $10 million is a whole lot of money to in finance coin, I guess, to go out and uh, make sure nobody steals money from the exchange. It's pretty interesting, isn't it, that they've actually created another bounty and that we're starting to see the beginnings of bounties being the norm for uh, how you deal with hackers. Uh, I wonder if we'll see that a lot more in the future. 
Uh, I mean, vigilante justice and uh, crypto anarchy go hand in hand, don't they? Indeed, they do. All right. So if the exchanges themselves are struggling with hacking, um, they, um, the law enforcement are actually finding Bitcoin itself at least a little bit interesting. This story really caught my attention. It comes uh, from the Telegraph in the United Kingdom. But uh, the headline here is Bitcoin is not anonymous and easy to track, says the Met Police Chief. So um, the Metropolitan Police being kind of uh, London's police, they, they look after a lot of organized crime as well. Uh, well, they don't look after, they try and prevent and, uh, <laughs> and, and arrest people who are doing organized crime. Um, and uh, they, I, I really like this story because Bitcoin is often seen as you know evil hacker money, thanks to its quote-unquote anonymity. But um, he said that tracing money is actually easier than a culprit might think. Um, and the uh, head of Organized Crime Command said the force was getting to grips with cryptocurrency. Um, and there's some reporting a while ago that whilst it was anonymous and difficult to investigate, it's not actually true. Uh, there's, there's definitely people laundering money, which is cash made from criminal activity. Um, but actually, uh, the, the investigation tools that they have, I guess from uh, just kind of block explorer type stuff or just the, the fact that there are people now who have graph databases of every transaction happening in Bitcoin in real time, it kind of makes Bitcoin not a great way to launder money anymore, Colin. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, what I thought was really interesting is they, they said London has become a hotbed for Bitcoin-related crime. Um, I knew London was always all about having crime, but I didn't know Bitcoin-related crime was a particular specialty. Um, as you said, and this is what we've been saying on the show for a while, blockchains are really good for tracking what happens indelibly forever. Um, so why not use that to go back and use some of these things? You can track it all the way back until eventually you get to maybe a Bitcoin ATM where you actually have people going in. Uh, you have CCTV everywhere in London, so it would make sense that they're also on your Bitcoin ATM that people try to steal. Um, and you can figure out if they've been putting this into a credit card. Uh, they allow you to do that. Some people are dumb enough to think that that's anonymous. Um, and go back and track that right up to the sources of it and everybody that came along. So um, if, if you're trying to do something illegal, Bitcoin's not necessarily the greatest thing to be doing it with. Um, that said, uh, what is very interesting about it is um, that it's uncensorable money. So a lot of people are conflating the idea that it's uncensorable with being anonymous. Um, I think it's a theme that a lot of people have been talking about for a while that um, darknet markets are starting to move off Bitcoin itself and into uh, privacy coins, things like Monero and Zcash uh, and Dash. Uh, we haven't really fully seen that transition happen, um, though it has done a little bit. Um, that could make things much more complicated for police. Um, but as it stands, I think this is a, a very good way for Bitcoin to, to advertise itself as actually opening up the market to something that could be better rather than just being some dark anonymous black hole. Yeah, I think it, it kind of changes that core narrative. It's a really interesting moment in history for such a senior police official to come out and say, actually, it's pretty easy to trace this stuff, um, especially compared to something like cash, um, especially compared to something uh, like the money laundering we see in, in the rest of financial services. So it's kind of almost saying like, this stuff isn't as bad as like the memes and some of the some of the people uh, in, in executive communities might have believed it is. But as you rightly point out, Colin, that doesn't mean Bitcoin's the only game in town by any stretch, as um, many of our listeners will know those privacy coins are now uh, becoming more dominant in that space. And, and actually, those are the things that worry people in law enforcement is uh, it's not Bitcoin that worries them, it's the privacy coins. Plus, is somebody just creating a coin to, uh, to, to launder money directly? Is somebody kind of just using um, an ICO as a front to launder money and so on, and then flip it on an exchange, etc. So um, it would be an interesting one to watch. 
So next story from Coindesk, um, Bitfinexed, uh, this this kind of online account who uh, is shedding all the dirt about what's happening with the Bitfinex exchange and, and its relationship to Tether. Um, the title is Bitfinexed strikes back um the there's a lawyer that warns the exchange bitfinex on against threatening this blogger so um colin do you want to walk us through this one yeah so one of our our favorite lawyers stephen paley who's been on the show uh twice now i believe uh talking about tezos uh has become the the lawyer for um this anonymous or pseudonymous figure uh bitfinex who as you said goes through and um does lots of research on bitfinex and things that may not be legal including wash trading on their platform, as well as Tether, which is a dollar-based uh, cryptocurrency or dollar-fixed, uh, hence the name Tether, cryptocurrency that they may not have full reserves, uh, which they claim to have. Um, there, After he's been exposing this repeatedly, um, he, they, she, I don't know exactly who they are, um, has been exposing this, uh, putting all this information out online. Uh, a lot of people got upset about this, and um, he has... They have, sorry, hired Stephen Pelly to represent them. And uh, they've very strongly pushed back against uh, all the threats that have been coming out for this blogging they've been doing, trying to expose the scam that is uh, re- reportedly uh, Bitfinex and Tether. Um, what I think is really interesting in this, we talked about vigilante justice from the, the exchange going out to find out these hackers. This is somebody that, at least in their mind, is trying to go out and, and help the public. And um, the exchange, is, in this case, is the one that's hiding behind lots of layers of obscurity and uh, is is possibly colluding with other people to try to silence Bitfinex. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a positive step to... Um, in the same way that security audits happen, that um, we we go out and we say, okay, even if the researchers find security problems and expose those, haven't necessarily done everything in, in the best way. There is some level of protection, although it's not 100%. Um, this is actually saying people that are doing that and trying to figure out what's going on in the back end. And if, if something may collapse, there may be an actual Ponzi scheme involved in all this and trying to expose that, um, that they have some form of protection. And a lot of this, the money they've actually used to pay um, Anderson Kill, this law firm that Stephen Paley is a partner at, has been through donations in Bitcoin. I think this is an interesting general trend that uh, if you are publicly in opposition to anything in the token space or crypto asset space, um, then there's uh, there's a whole bunch of threats that seem to come that way. And there's there's questions about, you know, where do those threats come from and, and uh, how are they being managed and are there bot armies that are, you know, kind of pushing things in one way or another. And this is a this is kind of a dark side that's often not covered of the whole um, crypto Twitter space as well as um, the, the blogosphere is that, um, you know, there are huge financial interests around the fact that Tether may have printed money um, or alleged to have printed the equivalent of US dollar without backing them to US dollar. And if that turned out to be true, that could have a consequence for people's finances. It's also being alleged that they may not want this information to come out. Therefore, it's alleged that some parties may be looking to threaten this blogger because they're they're not in the interests of of the people who hold the Tether and or uh, other currencies or, or have relationships with that exchange. All of this sort of screams there's no smoke without fire. There's, it feels like there's something going on here. And it's it's kind of a, a damning indictment of the, the state of the community where there are threats going back in either direction um, because there's, there's money kind of riding on this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think um, the thing I'll just leave it with on this is 
I mean, it, it could be that Bitfinex, the company, is actually trying to push back against Bitfinex, the blogger. It could very well be, as you said, any number of other people who are independent of both these parties who, if Bitfinex or Tether were, were proved to be a scam, um, would eventually lose a, a large chunk of money. And they may not have a direct financial interest in in either one of those companies. So it, it's a scary spot out there for people that are trying to be skeptical and trying to blow the whistle because um, the, the tides and the crowds and the wisdom of the crowds, if it were, um, are, are definitely trying to push the other way. No, um, and, and that's, a, that's an interesting point. Uh, I think for this place, um, for the whole crypto space to be clean, um, that sort of behavior uh, has to has to come to a conclusion. We'll, we'll keep following this story because I'm sure that saga is not over. Uh, and I think uh, it is going to be really important on a lot of people's agenda that the whole Tether situation, Bitfinex situation does come to a sensible conclusion. Next story from Coindesk um, is actually written by Michael J. Casey, who I think he and Paul Vigner just released a book um, last week. So shout out to them for, for having released that book. Um, the headline here is Time to Acknowledge and Encourage Women in Blockchain. Uh, he writes that it's sad that the, quote, Lambo crowd in general gets so much attention from the mainstream press relative to so many other important elements of the blockchain and crypto e- ecosystem. It's actually a bit of a sideshow of this um, Lambo hodl gang bullshit. The problem is that the more important realms, the areas of software and, and protocol development, entrepreneurship, a policy, male voices are really overdominant. And I say that on, on a show where the, both of the hosts are male. Um, it is true that there are actually no shortage of brilliant female minds. And this comes on the back of a Wired article we covered a couple of weeks ago. It's around the time, timed for International Women's Day. Um, th- I think there's a lot here, and I would encourage anybody who's uh, curious about the subject or, or any um, you know, female listeners, uh, if you're out there and you just want to know more about the kind of uh, some of the interesting names and some of the role models that are out there in, in the crypto assets and blockchain space, this article's a really good one because it starts to cite some, some interesting people. There's not a great jumping spot off there for jumping off spot for me there um so i I do just want to include that um sandra rowe who uh will be appearing later in the show in a great interview uh is quoted in there um she's done some fantastic work from cme and i'm really looking forward to uh hearing more about what she has to say yeah later in this episode uh looking forward to that so um i I for one uh hope that uh, we can be uh making sure we're recommending more people for panels um that we are thinking about how do we uh, get more guests on this show i I know producer laura is listening at the moment and this is something that we have uh battled with and, and con- continually do so so i'd encourage listeners to drop us an email podcasts at 11fs.com uh, if you know somebody who's fantastic who could do with some exposure on the show we're, we're happy to have them Alrighty, next story, again from Coindesk, um, the wyoming utility bill has now headed to the governor um colin do you want to cover this one off yeah, so this this is something that um, I've kind of been watching in the background for a little while, but it's happened really, really quickly. So um, we talked about women that are doing stuff that aren't necessarily uh, getting everything. Caitlin Long, formerly of, of Symbian, uh, has been doing a lot of work in the state of Wyoming, which, uh, for those of you that don't know, is the least populous state in the United States, um, at, to set up what's called a, a utility token bill. It's gone through the, the processes and just needs to be signed off by the governor of the state, um, which will be the first time, as far as I believe, that there is 
any law anywhere in the world that states what a utility token is. Now, we've had different interpretations from regulators that have classified utility tokens. This actually writes it into law in the state of Wyoming. Some complications with this law, I mean, it's great for people that are in the state of Wyoming that are only using a blockchain and a utility token within the state of Wyoming. I, I'm not sure exactly how this extends into other states or into um, other countries, um, but it does open up that idea that uh, laws can actually change. So um, fantastic work to Caitlin um, and to anybody listening in the state of Wyoming. Uh, this is fantastic. Uh, this is a story that I think we'll cover more and see if, if other jurisdictions follow the lead that the state of Wyoming is taking. Yeah, and let's see if we can try and get Caitlin on the show. Uh, it'd be interesting to get her perspective on this. Um, I think it's interesting that, uh, you, I mean, you know this better, Colin, being a native, but typically um, the the federal rules and federal regulators tend to take precedence over uh, kind of uh, a, a state uh, bill, especially if it's not yet headed to the governor. And we've seen that the SEC believes most of the tokens that are out there are securities and should be regulated as such. Um, to have a utility token bill uh, in one state may or may not um, kind of uh, confuse issues depending on, on how people um, kind of look at that. But it, but it's interesting to me that now we have a position in which, uh, I think as I briefly mentioned on last week's show, uh, Wyoming says it's a utility bill. The SEC says it's probably a security. Um, the CFTC says sometimes it behaves a bit like a commodity. Um, and then you've got, um, was it FinCEN saying like, uh, you must do KYC AML as if it were a payment. Uh, the, the confusion in this space is, is still phenomenal. And I think we need to really be sensible and start thinking about, well, actually, is what we need more like Japan, where they have a specific virtual currencies law, where they recognize it has aspects of all of the above, and maybe we should treat it for what it is, not what it sort of looked a bit like at one point. Yeah, and I think um, I think that that time will come. Um, what What I would like to see a whole lot more of is people actually rather than jumping to action and saying we either need to build a new law or we need to reinterpret this, say, you know, what's the hurry on this? Why don't we figure out what these things actually are and where all the pain points are? Uh, write them out and figure out where those, those problems are. I mean, a lot of the lawyers that have been looking at this have said, especially in the United States, uh, laws don't change nearly as frequently as they do in some other jurisdictions. Um, but we go through, and, and the UK is very similar, we go through case law where um, things have to go to trial and a judge ultimately decides um, based on the facts and the, the laws and the precedents that are out there. Um, so I think if you stay a whole 100% within the state of Wyoming, I don't think SEC rules come into play, though I, I could be very wrong. And I'm sure a lawyer will uh, that knows a whole lot more about that will point out my error there. Um, but different rules apply than if you're in the state of Wyoming and you deal with the state of California, for example, or if you're in the state of Wyoming and you deal with a foreign country like, let's say, Switzerland. Um, so I don't necessarily think we'll see an exemption for um, Zug-issued um, ICOs that are traded in the state of Wyoming. I could be wrong, though. Yeah, and that's an interesting point as well. If you're looking at um, potentially utility tokens being global, um, then having a, a kind of a law in one state in one country um, is it, kind of... Uh, a, a bit potentially meaningless you know because if you could sell it to people in wyoming from wyoming of wyoming um then what have you actually got versus uh if you've got a framework that could be recognized globally you're you're in a bit of a different position and and i'm with you i don't know if it's necessarily time to be starting to write laws but i think it is a time to start thinking about well what is it and how what should be the practices that sit around it as i know a lot of people are are now looking at so um all right, next story. Um, I like this one from The Verge um, just because I really liked the title. Um, the title reads... 
blockchain in air quotes, is meaningless. Um, there are countless experts, uh, explainers in text, audio, and video around the web. Almost all of them are wrong because they start with a false premise. There's no universal definition of a blockchain, and there are widespread disagreement over which qualities are essential in order to call something a blockchain. I think this is a really key point, Colin, and one that every time I give a talk, I, I kind of start with this idea. Because uh, if you're uh, kind of somebody who's quite new to the subject, it's really confusing. Somebody comes along and says a blockchain can do this, and then somebody else comes along and says no, it can't, and then somebody else comes along and goes it can do this other thing, and then you go, well, what is it then? And the reality is, there's a lot of nuance there, and it's hard to kind of unpick this. How do, how do you think about this? Yeah, um, this is a, it's a super confusing point. I mean, we, we do a weekly show trying to talk about um, everything around it, including cryptocurrencies to um, distributed ledgers, like things like Corda, uh, Quorum, other things to more well-known blockchain projects that are uh, legitimately, I guess, uh, a blockchain, but not Bitcoin's blockchain, like Ethereum. Um, it's, it's incredibly confusing, even for people that um, have been in it a while. And uh, we often mix up wording. I have, I'm in two minds about this. Like I, I get the point. I wrote an article in what February of 2017, trying to figure out what a blockchain was and distinguish from a distributed ledger. Uh, it's attached to my LinkedIn or my medium. If you're interested, um, it is long. <laughs> um, and I think I would update stuff as it comes through, but I, I, I get frustrated with people that are really just in this to be pedantic about the words. Um, we're in a period of extreme growth in this technology and I think um, how you define it right now is less important than what you can actually do with it, which is the important thing that people haven't started to get into it. It is a big thing to try to grasp. Um, so um, let, let's do some more building and a little bit less um, trying to figure out if it's a blockchain, the blockchain, blockchain, blockchains, DLT, whatever it is. Um, and, and, you know, uh, have a conversation with people rather than spouting out some stupid stuff about blockchains never being useful. Yeah, I think um, the shorthand I typically use is that um, there are two sort of imperfect communities that fit within the broader subject. There's the quote-unquote um, blockchain and crypto world, um, which is the this idea that um, I've caught some element of decentralization and I've probably got a crypto asset of some sort um, or, or sometimes called a currency. And then I've got the DLT world, which is typically could be more permissioned, typically exists without a crypto asset, but there's a whole bunch of nuance that those things miss. Um, and then on our first one, crypto assets that, that are in the quote-unquote blockchain world, um, I think about Bitcoin, Ethereum, I think about um, you know, Litecoin, I think about Dash, Monero. Um, I also think about the ICOs, I think about tokens and, and those sorts of things. In the quote-unquote DLT world, the distributed ledger world, I think about R3, I think about Hyperledger, I think about uh, Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. And permissioned versus permissionless is another way of thinking about it. All of those, though, can be sliding scales, and there's a lot of nuance missing from them. Um, I, and also, if you think about it as like a as a class of a subject, so if you had um, the subject of vehicles, you might want a car for some things, you might want a plane for other things, and you might want uh, a boat for other things. The, the 
tool you use will depend on what your problem is. Similarly, uh, if I have uh, a salad, then having a spoon isn't very useful. If I have a soup, then having a fork isn't very useful. I've got to have the right tool for the right problem. And that's why understanding your problem is always the most um, important thing. Or as Richard Brown R3 said, what's the requirement? Um, so um, next story, Colin, comes from Bloomberg. Um, technology company Ripple have been in some drama with R3, um, and they've lost their bid to keep the cryptocurrency fight in California. So block, um, from Bloomberg, um, Ripple Labs has lost its shot at home court advantage, apparently, um, and uh, they have a dispute with rival R3 of the ownership of cryptocurrency XRP that was once worth more than $16 billion. The San Francisco State Appeals Court has denied Ripple's bid to fast-track an appeal order um, and quashing the lawsuit against R3. Ripple has argued that it would face irreparable injury uh, if it has to battle on R3's home turf in Manhattan. Uh, litigation between the two arose after the partnership broke down, with Ripple claiming that R3 entered an arrangement on false pretenses, and R3 claiming that Ripple illegally uh, declined to honor an agreement to hand over $5 billion of its cryptocurrency XRP. Colin, any thoughts here? Yeah, let's let's unpack this a bit. So, yeah, as you said, this is a story that's been going on for a little while, um, where there was an agreement uh, between Ripple and R3, so Ripple Labs at the time, I guess they're just Ripple now. Um, they are um, a company that's trying to promote um, cross-border payments. We've talked about them on the show a bit. Uh, R3 is a big consortium of uh, banks and technology partners, one of the sponsors of this show. They, Ripple, um, control a large chunk of XRP that exists, um, and they had written an option to R3 for $5 billion, uh, XRP, which are worth... Uh, at, were worth at the time less than a penny. Now they're worth somewhere in the realm of a dollar, two dollars, depending on when you listen to this. Maybe a bit less, uh, maybe a bit more. Um, and they Ripple alleged to um, have had a, an issue with R three because they didn't honor uh, their contract, which was to go out and promote uh, Ripple and XRP to banks. R three claims that they didn't have the right to rip this up. There were different lawsuits done in the state of New Jersey, uh, in the state of New York, and in the state of California. Um, the the one I believe done in the state of New Jersey was originally thrown out. It was from R three towards Ripple about throwing it out, and they they essentially said we don't have jurisdiction. This one that's just been thrown out was the counter lawsuit um, from Ripple towards R three, saying they've caused damage to to Ripple the company um, in in this whole affair. So uh, I guess what this comes back and, and means is essentially it's all going to go back to New York and we'll find out if anything happens. We still don't know who's right, who's wrong and all of this, but uh, it's an interesting development. It is indeed. Um, I'm sure there'll be more developments with this one as well that we'll cover on a future show. Um, I'm going to move us to the next story, Colin. Um, there's a story from the Financial Times, but I know a lot of outlets covered this. Um, SWIFT, who are the famous interbank network that manage uh, moving money internationally between banks um, and large uh, financial services companies, says, quote-unquote, blockchain is not ready for mainstream use. Um, they say blockchain technology needs to make more progress before it can handle the billions of dollars of daily cross-border payments between the world's banks. Swift has concluded after testing the new system on its interbank messaging network. Swift, which handles more than half of the high-value cross-border payments, said on Thursday that it completed a proof of concept um, to reconcile international payments between accounts of 34 
banks. So this is a um, quote from Damien, um, who's head of research and development at Swift. Although the proof of concept demonstrated DLT could improve nostril liquidity management and reconciliation processes, in other words, liquidity would be better i deal with reconciliation it revealed that the pre a uh, bunch of prerequisites would be met before banks could enjoy the full benefits of switching to a dlt process now underneath this one colin um not all is as it seems because it sounds to me like they're saying any type of blockchain is not ready for mainstream use versus the one they used what do you think's going on uh, I, I think you basically have encapsulated it. So if I understood correctly, they used um, the Fabric platform, uh, which is uh, open source under the, the Hyperledger project, uh, originally came from IBM. And I believe they did this proof of concept with, with IBM and uh, 34 banks that happened to be on the Swift network. Uh, it didn't work and deliver everything they wanted to deliver. So um, they have extrapolated that and said the whole technology is, is not ready. Um, my simple response to that is the technology stack you used, which was provided as Hyperledger Fabric, uh, didn't deliver what you wanted. And as we said earlier, um, don't use a fork when you need a spoon. Um, really interesting. Um, Richard Crook, who's going to be on the show, I believe, next week with us um, from RBS, uh, tweeted out that uh, they did this, what, two and a half years ago, uh, maybe three years ago now, uh, with Ethereum, and it worked just fine for them then. Um, I know that R3 has done some stuff with Corda on this uh, and not had similar problems. So maybe, Swift, you should do a little bit more uh, research before you decide that uh, all of this technology is not ready, and, and maybe even do some, some uh, resource gathering before you try to launch proof of concept. But, you know, whatever, I'm not Swift. Yeah, this one really disappoints me. Um, I am very disappointed in uh, Swift uh, lack of nuance in when they put the press release out and when they put people talking to the media. It sounds to me like they're almost trying to talk down blockchain and DLT. I don't know if that's the intent, but they did this test with IBM and somebody along the line doesn't know that there's more, not all blockchains are created equal. I think as we said earlier, um, blockchain isn't one thing. It could be 20, 30, 50 different things. And actually it's a family of technologies. And depending on what my problem is, I'd use a different um, solution. Uh, and I think uh, there are ways in which you can solve the problem i mean if you think about the problems a big corporate has or you and i have with international payments i go to send some money i don't know when it's going to get there i don't know what my fees are going to be um and like i've pretty much no idea um when it's going to get there so th this problem is like kind of a bit of an annoyance for you and me but it's, if you are like a major company moving massive amounts of money around the world that can become a massive problem and really really costly so the thing that they did is they proved that you could solve that problem. It's just the blockchain they used wasn't very fast um, and wasn't very efficient. But there might be others that can solve the same problems that are fast and efficient. Yeah, and and I mean all these things. Whenever you see these, uh, this one didn't work. These things aren't ready. It, it, I always come back to you know when when cars started coming out and they were the horse-drawn carriage. Um, you didn't see motors being strapped to the end end of uh, carriages. I mean, there's there's drawings out there of what would have happened if that happened. Maybe the process that you have just isn't suited. And maybe you also not only think about the technology to upgrade these things, but what should the process really be? And maybe that process doesn't need a Swift at all.
Indeed. All right, next story, Colin from Politico. This is what happens when Bitcoin miners take over your town. I really like this story, and not only because it's about a place, it's about three hours from where I was born and I grew up uh, in in central Washington. Um, So this story is a good long story to read if you're interested about how mining works. It explains a bit about that and about um, what happened in what's called the Mid-Columbia Basin, which is about three hours east of Seattle. Um, for people listening from Washington State, thank you. Um, so really interesting. There, there's um, We've talked about mining a lot on this show. Um, this is talking about uh, somebody who's set up mining at one point, reckoned that he was about uh, 25% of the mining, which is very different from the stories we hear about people in China that are doing all this mining using coal. This happens to be using the 3,000 plus dams along the Columbia River. Um, and they've been having um, issues, but at the same time brought a lot of opportunity and see this potentially as you know the new Silicon Valley of cryptocurrency um, rising up. And this this is uh, goes hand in hand with places like Quebec, uh, places like Iceland that have been doing a lot of mining as well. Um, and they talked about... Um, buying up uh, excess electricity. They've also talked about the land and bringing new jobs in, also paying lots of state sales tax and, and having to constantly upgrade everything. But um, you know, a lot of people are starting to worry that maybe this is harmful and they're wasting electricity. They quoted a couple of towns where the mining proposals to come in were actually more electricity than the entire town used currently, which I thought was really interesting. And a lot of people are saying, look, this is just speculative and you know, eventually it's going to collapse and all these guys are just going to leave uh, debts and empty fields and we're going to be stuck you know, bag holding. So I, I think it's interesting to look at. They, they had a couple of cool antidotes about people flying in from Asia uh, to the local airport and private jets rocking up to the dam and saying, you know, we want to buy electricity directly from you, um, which must be crazy for these people, you know, uh, out, out in the mountains in, in rural Washington state. So uh, I definitely have a read. Indeed. Um, I, I think it's an interesting sign of the times that people's lives have really been affected by the crypto industry. It's everything from the share price of chip makers like NVIDIA and uh, AMD to uh, to this day-to-day community impact. And uh, it, it sort of says that um, this is a reasonable-sized industry that's probably here to stay in some shape, form, or fashion. Uh, and uh, it, it's making a real difference to people's lives. And and it's not just in the virtual world, it's it's actual physical changes. And I think that is something that people have a hard time really grasping when they watch the price go up and down. Completely. Uh, the human impact. All right. I, I got to remind listeners that today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows business to transact directly in strict privacy with Colin's beard using smart contracts. Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need for a trusted intermediary or any GSAS. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 with over 160 of the world's largest banks. Thanks technology partners and Collins Rhododendron. It's ready to build on today um, and the financial community are deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. You can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Go to Corda.net to learn more. Next story um, comes from Quartz Media, a report that says Egypt is secretly forcing citizens to mine cryptocurrency. If there's anything more Orwellian, I don't know what it is. Um, So according to Quartz, the Egyptian government or entities linked to it have hijacked local internet users' connections to secretly mine cryptocurrency en masse, according to a new report by security researchers at the University of Toronto. Um, Colin, what... (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> I think what is, is, is how you sum this thing up. Um, so some researchers have been looking at this um, and have found evidence that suggests that um, somebody in the Egyptian government or that had access into the Egyptian government or somehow adjacent to them um, has been using uh, citizens or people based in, in Egypt's internet connections when they go to different websites, including to some porn sites, um, to mine uh, the cryptocurrency Monero um, and display ads that do specifically that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, they're also showing that they may be censoring this. It's bizarre, I guess, is, is a good way to put this. Um, but uh, if it's actually happening, I mean, um, I, I have to question first why the Egyptian government needs Monero. Um, I know that they have had some interesting political developments over the last several years. Um, but why Monero solves that problem, I have no idea. Um, I think it's very likely that there's probably a hacker that has um, hijacked some local internet connections. Um, so maybe it's the government looking for Monero. Maybe it's just somebody that decided that Egypt was an easy target. Yeah, so there's um, there's definitely a question about whether or not the hackers are state-sponsored or not, and you can never really tell on these things. I think there is a fear um, at certain levels of global governance that uh, and uh, law enforcement that things like this uh, can be used to accumulate capital, launder money, and, and promote um, kind of uh, violence or other types of uh, behavior that, that, that are concerning from, from a global perspective which is why we see such a pushback and, and a push for anti-money laundering um, and, and other such uh, tools and techniques but we'll, we'll have to keep watching this stuff Colin stories we did not have time to cover which Michael we need a jingle for um, so the story from Coindesk uh, Kodak coin backers warned that the SEC could restrict token trading oh unlucky Kodak you just can't catch a break these days um, uh, stuff.co.nz uh, New Zealand struggles to regulate cryptocurrency well god bless them um, yeah um, uh, it's it's pretty hard task um, I, I definitely wish them well especially if you're in New Zealand everything's just difficult down there <laughs> just random hate on New Zealand for no apparent reason alright link here from news.ifeng.com I think China's central bank is developing a digital currency and we've heard this story a whole bunch of times um maybe we'll have to cover this one a little bit more because they've said they they intend to um but let's see if they actually do lastly we didn't have time to cover uh, a story we'll try and get into next week uh jp morgan's amber balde on coindesk talks a little bit about what enterprise wants um from from ethereum so um that that's a really interesting story and one we'll try and make more time for time for tweet of the week it's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. of the Week comes from the man of the moment, John Oliver. Um, and it read, huge thanks to uh, Keegan M. Key for helping and his wisdom last night. If you have not seen it, um, then John Oliver runs a TV show called Last Week Tonight. And uh, it's just, uh, he, he managed to do about 25 minutes on the subject of Bitcoin and crypto. It's possibly one of the better layman's explanations of Bitcoin and crypto and just really funny and really entertaining. Um, but Tweet of the Week actually comes, I think, from, um, uh, oh no, wait, just ignore that Tweet of the Week actually comes from. Just forget about that. Um, um and, uh, you know, he managed to uh, say a couple of interesting things like, you're not investing, you're gambling, please don't invest anything you can't afford to lose, all the sensible stuff. Um, and Bitcoin sort of resembles a $15,000 beanie baby. If somebody's willing to buy it for $15,000, then that's what it's worth. Exactly. Uh, 
what what I really liked of the show was um, we he kept taking the piss out of a guy named Dan that works apparently at the show that's been talking about Bitcoin nonstop. And you know we were those guys a couple of years ago, weren't we, Simon? <laughs> we we were done. I think you still are um, with your rhododendrons and your field in France or whatever. You weirdo. You hate me. Mm-hmm. Be grateful. <laughs> Be grateful out there, kids. All right. Um, don't forget, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered on Twitter, getting in touch at Chain Insider to share your thoughts, or, or you can be grateful by contacting me at SYTaylor, or extra grateful um, if you get in touch with at Colin G. Platt. Um, if you haven't seen the John Oliver thing, you definitely need to. That'll explain what the grateful thing's all about. Um, if you want to pick up with us personally, if not, drop us an email, podcast at 11fs.com um, if you have any uh, selected guests, if you know any great women doing things in blockchain that we haven't spoken to that would be available and want to speak to us, please, please do uh, let them know. Um, and next up, of course, I spoke to the managing partner and COO at UWIN Corp um, and former CME, uh, the one and only Sandra Rowe. We are here and I'm joined by the wonderful Sandra Rowe. Sandra, thank you for being with us on Blockchain Insider. Thank you, Simon, for having me. I'm delighted to have you because not only are you one of my favorite humans, period, but you've actually had a phenomenal career. I wondered if you could just tell people a little bit about what it is you've done in the past and, uh, you know, your background and what led you to the blockchain space. Sure. So I actually went to London Business School. So I came to London in my 20s and I um, ended up staying for actually quite a while. People just assume that I've had this career in the US, but actually most of my career has actually been in banking and in London. So I started off on the trading floor at Deutsche Bank and foreign exchange as a structurer. So I'm a financial engineer Mm -hmm. by training. And then I moved on to Morgan Stanley, where I worked on M&A uh, deals on the global capital market side uh, as an interest rate and FX uh, structurer. So I've looked at a lot of M&A deals. And then um, CME called, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange Group called and said they needed someone to run their uh, FX research and product development group. So I joined CME out of the London office and then um, stumbled into blockchain and Bitcoin back in 2012. And just like a lot of people who started off, I read the white paper because one of my FX trading buddies said, hey, you should check this paper out. It's actually kind of cool. And so I read it. Um, I will fully admit the first time I read it, I didn't fully understand the impact and the implications. Read it a few more times. And finally, I had that aha moment, just like a lot of people have, which was, hey, this could really actually uh, change a whole lot of things about the way banking works. And if it, this, this, you know, P2P payment system really is what it is, we've got something revolutionary here. And I think at that moment, I realized, wait a minute, I got to do a lot more digging into this. You got to figure it out more. So what happened next? You, you sort of go, aha, there's something here. What, what did you find in your digging? And, and what did you do whilst you were at CME? Well, I was very fortunate. So being running the FX research and product development group, I could put Bitcoin under the auspices of research and and Uh, development, uh, obviously. uh. So we actually had a small team who had actually been looking at Bitcoin. And funny enough, I managed to find over time a very small group of people from very different areas within the firm. We all kind of gravitated towards each other once we found out that we were interested in Bitcoin. And we started doing grassroots level uh, meetups. We would actually share articles. We'd share papers. And it was really early days of just 
hey, did you hear about this cool thing or this person's working on this? And we actually ended up um, meeting companies. We invited people to come over. We interviewed a lot of people. This is back in 2012, 2013. It wasn't necessarily what most corporates were doing. Um, you know, we met some really interesting companies very early on. Um, I went to Berlin to go hang out with the Ethereum Foundation guys. Like, you know, we went and talked to Bitcoin core developers. We did some very early things that um, made us aware of what was kind of going on at the cutting edge before I think a lot of other corporates did. Yeah, I, I often observe that it was probably late 2014 and really early 2015 before most of the banking sector and financial services kind of went, aha, we like this. But then they went, but let's forget about that currency thing and let's have it our way. And how do you think, how do you see the evolution from sort of the, the 14, 15 to where we are now? What, what do you think's happened in that time? So I think media has had a role to play in um, spreading the word for good or for bad. Um, I think also when companies started, startups in particular started, particularly in fintech, I should say, uh, started kind of, you know, ratcheting up the radar, at least being on the radar of banks. I think banks realized, wait a minute, this is actually pretty um, scary or uh, exciting, depending on which side you take on it. And I think consortiums helped a lot too. I think back in 2015, 16 is when you really saw number of consortiums form. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was the beginning of Hyperledger. It was the beginning of all three PTDL things. Yes. Well. So I think that also helped bring um, minds together. I think there was a lot of question marks around what is this thing and does it actually impact us? Um, and now I think the conversation has moved from this does impact us, but how specifically yeah. and what can we do about it? And the, the hows and the whats, what, what do you see um, in the hows and the whats that people are doing that you find just interesting? Because you obviously then left CME to do some stuff that we'll talk about in a second. Right. But now as you look back on the world of financial services, you look back on that and think, that's interesting, that I'm not so sure about. What are your observations? So one thing I observed in all the conversations we were having with some of our largest banking clients was very much a cost-driven, efficiency-driven perspective on blockchain, which was how do I, uh, you know, cut out operating costs in the back end, especially middle to back office solutions was really the focus. And I think that was where you could get a lot of consensus or at least a lot of banks and other institutions to come together because if you could actually take out costs, that's a very sensitive thing for a lot of institutions. They want to look for opportunities for cost cutting. Right? And it's about mutualizing infrastructure because if we all do the same stuff and it's commoditized, yeah. then why don't we use the same infrastructure to do it if we can figure out a way to make that? Whereas generating new revenue, now we're competing with each other. It's a bit harder to collaborate, but these technologies might be collaborative in nature. So it's kind of difficult to play there. The concept of shared backend infrastructure in particular, I think has actually um, become something that many institutions are comfortable with now. I think in the old days or, or you know, previous thinking, you really were leery as an institution to share the idea of sharing data, sharing trade confirmations, sharing of infrastructure just really didn't um, enter into people's minds. But with the pressures on co reducing costs. I think with the pressures on finding efficiencies, people are getting to the point where it makes sense to share infrastructure where that's not your core competency. 
Yeah. How do you reflect on the, we like the technology, but not the currency statements now looking back on on you know the few years behind you because i think it was bitcoin that sparked your interest yeah. um and to still to this day you strike me as somebody really philosophical about cryptocurrencies and crypto assets but you know the inside of financial market infrastructure as, as well as anybody on yeah. the planet i would argue i think it's actually very difficult um and i actually don't like the argument of separating um blockchain from crypto i actually think uh the concept of cryptocurrencies, crypto tokens, uh, however you want to classify them, digital assets will have a major role to play in banking and financial services. Uh, I, I understand why people want to separate the two, but the reality is, is that crypto tokens, currencies will have a major role in financial services, whether people like it or not. Very exciting times to come. And we, yeah. uh, we, we've seen a few um, CME and SIBO have, have started offering some Absolutely. products in that space. Absolutely. So let's move to what you're doing now, because you left CME and it's blockchain for good um, that you're looking at. Uh, so, did I get the name right? Yes. So I am focusing on um, projects that are primarily focused on blockchain for good. Uh, and what that really means to me is where where can we take this technology and apply it to help those who are really outside of formal financial services? Mm -hmm. And it's not just about access and um uh, ability to leverage services. It's really about why are people left out of formal markets um, in the first place? And a lot of it has to do with very low-level problems like being documented, uh, being recognized that you have assets, which then can be valued. And these are things that whether if you're in the United States or if you're in the UK, you take those for granted because if you buy something, you'll probably have title ownership to that and legally enforceable. In many developing nations, um, that assumption is not true it breaks down, and actually it? does not exist in many cases. And therefore, you may actually own a piece of land or have that in your family for generations. But if you can't prove it, then how could you possibly um, be able to say, I have value to this? And then on top of that, leverage that for any other purpose. And the only way you might be able to prove it is, especially if you live in a rural region, is somebody visits you and co comes and sees it for themselves because there's no paper trail. And even if there was a paper trail, can I trust that paper trail? And who's offering the financial services there? And can I open a branch near you? Is that affordable to, to offer you financial products? There's, there's a whole bunch of problems that start to come out. Absolutely. And so I, I'm not saying that blockchain or nor technology solves every social problem, but there are definitely Definitely some areas where blockchain technology will be able to shine a light, particularly in areas where we need to um, have transparency, reduce fraud. Uh, I'm focusing on two different projects right now. One, the big one that I'm focusing on is called Unleashing Wealth in Nations. The company is actually called UN Corp. And we are working on um, solutions in the physical commodity space to help rural farmers and producers. When you look at any supply chain, let's say there's $10 of value, uh, you most people will be shocked to know that actually the farmer probably gets less than a dollar of that. Um, to me, that seems quite unfair. And I think to most people, it seems quite unfair. And I think the real, there are lots of very complicated issues for why the farmer gets less than a dollar, but you can start unpacking that and start solving for pieces of uh, the problem that will then allow for hopefully more dollars to go into the pockets of the farmers. So let's make this tangible. Let's take a given commodity and let's follow it through its supply chain and just a couple of examples of where the problems are and a couple of examples of how the technology alleviates that. 
Sure. So I've spent um, quite a few weeks recently in December in Cameroon, and I'll give you a very specific example of having spent some time on a palm nut plantation with a number of farmers. They uh, produce lots of palm nuts. It's very labor-intensive. It takes about a four-year cycle for palm trees to produce enough palm nuts to make palm oil. Palm oil is in nearly everything you can imagine. Look at the back of any food label or even skincare, and you'll find that there's probably palm oil there. And if you think about the demand in palm oil, you would think, well, people must be paying quite a lot for palm oil. Um, yes and no. So it's labor-intensive, as I mentioned. Um, so there's lots of people working on the fields to actually get the palm, palm oil. Um, one of the problems that you have is that on a farm that's 20 hectares or 100 hectares, um, a lot of farmers don't have access to large vehicles to actually transport those palm nuts when they're ready. So what happens? An intermediary comes along and says, and this, they're very clever, they come around during school fees um, period when farmers need the cash to pay for their school fees. And guess what they do? They say, hey, all right, I'll take your palm nuts and I'll pay for that. But you know what? The quality of that from last year is not quite as good. So I'm going to take 20% off and I'm only going to give you this much. Here's the problem. The farmer has no pricing power. The farmer actually probably isn't going to negotiate. They might, you know, they might push back a little bit, but the reality is, is the power is in the hand of the intermediary that takes those palm nuts and then puts them on their truck and then moves them to the next stage. And that's actually where a lot of the value is lost, is the lack of information, the lack of price transparency, and the lack of pricing power. And, and how do I get information to somebody in a rural community? And how do they understand what that actually means and, mm -hmm. and push back? Because there's, there's obviously a technology component, but there's a lot more to it than that. Julie. Yes. So one good area that we are focusing on is the fact that governments are pushing cooperative um, networks. So many cooperatives are starting to aggregate farmers together. And as they aggregate farmers together in a given physical commodity or a given community, that helps to have um, collective pricing power, right? Um, and that's a good thing, provided that the cooperative is doing their job. Now, the second challenge is, is that, well, how do you deliver pricing information, for example, or how do you get price discovery? So one component is the fact that many people are moving from mobile Nokia type mobile phones to smartphones. And with the push to sm smartphones, you will be able to then push out data, push out apps, push out information in a different way. And even on the like standard mobile phones that are just, um, that are just for phone, uh, for calling, you could actually, um, push out text messages, right? So there is ways to get information out because here's the funny thing. Everyone has a phone that I could tell from all the people that I met. And yet, um, they may not necessarily have access to regular electricity nor running water, mm -hmm. but yet people have mobile phones. And the advent of the mobile phone is really critical to information delivery, I think, especially in developing nations. And so we need to get that information to people, but we also need to get information from them and from throughout the process. And we need to know that that information uh, hasn't been tampered with when it gets to the last mile yep. and vice versa. The products themselves haven't been tampered with as they come from the last mile yep. and that the ultimate buyer can see that the ultimate recipient has received a fair price for Freddie's work. Absolutely. So that is an enormous problem. It's a supply chain problem. And what we're going to focus on is the source. So meaning at the farmer level, mm -hmm. we will be looking at verification and um, physical um, confirmation, verification, uh, 
uh, processes so that we could actually be the one who says in the network, this is true. This farmer said, I have X, and we will verify that X is there. And how do you do that? How do you verify that when you're not there? Or There's a village model. So in the village, everyone knows each other. In the village, uh, people know a lot of information about each other. And also in a village model, you know when someone is cheating. So in order to, we, we will always assume that someone in a network is trying to cheat. We always think that there is an actor trying to be quote unquote bad. And what we do is we come up with different layers of verification mechanism so that you don't trust one person saying that I have this, but you actually have a network of those saying and verifying that someone has X. And that's where consensus and technologies that work Absolutely. through consensus are handy. Yes. Um, the good news is that you do have a chief. So you can start somewhere. You have a chief usually in a village or someone who is a authorized figure or recognized figure who is considered trustworthy. So you could rely on that person to start with, but then you start overlaying many other types of approval or uh, verification networks to be able to, um, or nodes, I should say, to be able to get to a place where you get really good at identifying bad actors very quickly. Mm -hmm. You'll never be able to actually, in my view, prevent cheaters um, because people who want to cheat will cheat, but you can actually identify cheaters much more quickly in a network. And you can identify that pattern of behavior and you can start to see that pattern of behavior come up time and time again and and know what that means. And we are looking at different algorithms that will look at um, how we perfect the concept of a reputation index Mm -hmm. inside the network Mm -hmm. so that it's not only an individual reputation index, but it's actually a community-based reputation index as well. Which could affect price. If you decide to be a bad actor, then guess what? Your entire community will know that you did something bad because the entire community's index will also go down. And that hopefully will deter um, some of the bad behavior. Fingers crossed. Um, I could talk about this forever, but I mean, I I feel like we've already really explored uh, just a a fraction of that. And I'd I'd love to go longer, but we're running low on time. So I I just want to ask before we move on, what what are your hopes and dreams for both this project and the space generally? And what, what sort of challenges do you think it has? Um, we're going to have an enormous number of challenges. This is something that um, we're doing. It's actually, people have attempted to do pieces of it. What we're trying to actually do is aggregate a much bigger picture. So imagine this, if you are a London um, commodities researcher or research analyst or hedge fund trader, there's no way today for you to get local market pricing in real time at the source, meaning the price of local market ivory, uh, c- uh, coffee in Cameroon in Brazil, in different markets in Vietnam. Imagine if you could get that delivered to you in, in a vet, in a much easier form, in, in a digital form, and that has value, that Absolutely. source data. What if we could deliver that? That's ultimately our goal is to deliver that to the end user. But for the farmer, what we're trying to do is shine a light and say, we will docu- start documenting your identity, your assets, that includes livestock, machinery, things that you own that have value, and we will help you estimate some valuation on that. And therefore, we're not planning on being a bank, but we want to collaborate with others who may want to offer financial services to those farmers. And further to that, we want to then build uh, the ability to have a trading platform, an auction platform that allows for pricing 
and trading on um, a transparent solution. I find that super exciting. I can actually see four or five business models that could be profitable for numerous organizations on the back of just having that data. Absolutely. And uh, we've got two mandates, one in Cameroon and the other one in Mauritius to build out um, these solutions. Uh, My business partner, Julius Akinyemi, is an MIT Media Lab entrepreneur in residence, and he actually did a pilot already in Senegal with a cooperative. It yielded half a million, nearly half a million farmers worth of data and um, assets. And in turn, that small pilot alone back in 2015 actually created an opportunity for the farmers whereby they got an order from Saudi Arabia. They'd never received an order from Saudi Arabia before to actually have a monthly order for livestock. Absolutely incredible. So, you know, it's a small pilot that he did, but getting even half a million farmers worth of data is quite significant. And we'll be getting more from Cameroon as well as from Mauritius. Brilliant. So if people are interested in this project and they want to reach out to you or they just want to learn more about sure. the, the subjects you mentioned, where would uh, where would they go to find out about um, you and the project? Absolutely. So they could just email me on Sandra at uwincorp.com. Uh, our website's under construction at the moment or find me on Twitter um, or LinkedIn. So, Brilliant. Yeah. Sandra, thank you for being with us on Blockchain Insider. Thank you. All right, a massive thank you to Sandra, brilliant as usual, and a big thank you to my co-host, GSAS himself, Colin G. Platt. Um, How are you, sir? You going to have a good week? I'm going to have a great week. Uh, Hopefully, we'll even see some sun down here. You might see some sun, um, and you'll be hanging out um, with all of that sun and France. Just just enjoy the week. Um, Big thank you to uh, producer Laura Watkins, Michael Bailey, our editor, assistant producer um, Petrit, uh, and all of the 11 Media team. Uh, 11FS, the company who brings you this podcast here, a challenger consultancy. We help banks, asset managers, or FMIs, anybody with a challenge in this space to do more and get more um, out of your fields or your DLT projects. Um, if Or if you just want a speaker about fields and rhododendrons or blockchain and DLT, uh, we hope you'll get in touch. Um, find out more at 11FS.com. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. And spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.